Join me in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And this is really going to be a transition from what we have been looking at in John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer into our summer sermon series, which is entitled Discipleship in Community, in the next few months focusing how we need one another in the Christian life that is indispensable to have those close Christian connections. And so this is somewhat of a transition because it is on prayer, and so it's flowing out of John 17 with Jesus praying for us. But now we move into how we have been called to pray for one another. When you take a look at the New Testament, you see that not only, <clears throat> excuse me, not only is our Savior continually bringing our names before his Father, we've looked at that. He's always living to make intercession for us, and we praise the Lord for that. But as you look through the New Testament, you see that we too are commanded to do the same, that we are called to intercede for one another, to follow in our Savior's pattern, his footsteps. We're called to bring one another before the throne of grace, to carry one another's burdens before the Lord, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Jesus does, praying for one another's sanctification, as we'll see, our fruitfulness and our endurance. And the question is why? Why are we called to pray for one another? The answer is this, because we need one another's prayers. We need one another's prayers because our intercession for one another plays a significant role in the spiritual vitality and faithfulness of our fellow believers' lives. I want you to look at two passages. Look at Colossians chapter four. Colossians Look at verse two, and you're gonna see Paul now giving a command for two. We are told that we are to devote ourselves, devote yourselves, not a suggestion. Present tense, continual engagement now, devote yourselves to what? To prayer. And then he says this, praying at the same time for us. So yes, we pray for ourselves, definitely, but we pray for others. That is needed. Now look at Ephesians. Turn back to Ephesians chapter six. What you see here in Ephesians six, as the book comes to a conclusion, is great application for us. We are told in verse 10 that we are to be strong in the Lord. We need the strength of God. We'll see that in a little bit. Verse 11, we are to put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So we live in a world controlled, evil world system controlled by Satan. We've looked at that. Verse 12, Paul is very clear for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the forces, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's our battle. We cannot win that battle alone. We cannot stand strong in our own strength. And thus, we're given the resources. 
Verse 13, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Remain strong, enduring, obedient. You see the emphasis, end of verse 13, stand firm. Start in verse 11, stand firm. Verse 10, be strong. Repeat it again in verse 14, stand firm. So we gird ourselves with the loins of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, we put on uh, those, the feet, make preparation of the gospel of peace. Why? Because we have a temptation that comes. Taking up the shield of faith, verse 16. Through the shield of faith, you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Stand firm, put on the armor. This is the strength of the Lord that we need. And you think back now to Sunday school days and you think of the flannel board. Remember flannel board, right? Flannel board, I'm dating myself. I remember flannel board here. And so you have the, the little soldier and you have all those, those items there. And that's where it ends, doesn't it? Look at verse 18. There's another, there's something else that we need to do. There's another way that we must stand firm. It's what we all need. Verse 18, with all prayer. It's part of the armor of God. With all prayer and petition at all times in the spirit and within this in view, put, be on the alert. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. What are those next four words? For all the saints. This is what we need. We're in this battle together. We're called to be strong and to stand firm, to resist, to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We cannot do that alone. We're in this battle together. So turn back to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. Because what we see is Paul take that command to offer up petitions for all the saints and we see him put that into practice in verses nine through 12. Colossians chapter one, verses nine through 12. This is Paul now giving us a model for how we must pray for one another. Think of 1 Thessalonians chapter five, where he says, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. Paul says, bring me before God in prayer and do it because I need you to do it. Even the great apostle needs this. But now this same apostle brings others before the throne of God's grace. This is a model for us. This is indeed discipleship in community as we lift one another up in prayer. Let's read the text, start in verse nine. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks 
to the Father. This is how we can pray for one another. Let me add here, this is how we need others to pray for us. There's six prayers Paul offers on behalf of the Colossians. Six prayers we too can offer on behalf of our EBC church family. Let's look at each of these. Start with prayer number one. Prayer number one. We need to pray for one another to be satisfied with the sovereign will of God. We need to pray for one another to be satisfied with the sovereign will of God. That's verse nine. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask, here's the prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as a believer, what we need most in our life is an understanding of God's purposes a belief in his goodness, a trust in his sovereign design, a satisfaction that the Lord is working out his will in accordance with his infinite wisdom in order to magnify his eternal glory. We need that in our minds. We need to believe that. And thus, this is where our intercession for one another begins. This is how we begin our prayer. We pray that our brothers and sisters would believe God, trust God. It's basic, but so often our prayers bypass this first request, don't they? When we begin our prayers, we ask most of the time to change the circumstances in someone's life. That's how we begin, or to relieve them of their pain to bring a reprieve from their hardship without ever praying for a change of mind. Paul's prayer begins that the Colossians would be filled, controlled by, satisfied with, verse nine, the knowledge of God's will, his sovereign purposes, his all wise decisions. Now here, Paul is not referring to the secret will of God or the individual will of God. What you are specifically to do right now. That's not the reference here. It's not referring to those things that have not been revealed in the scriptures. Paul's praying for a knowledge of the overall redemptive will of God, the grid through which we are to view all of life. Here's what Paul is praying for. Drop down to verse 19. Here's the will of God, for it was the Father's good pleasure. It was the Father's will for all the fullness to dwell in him, in Christ, and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself. This is the overarching will of our God. That Christ be glorified through the redemption of sinners. I say, Paul writes, I say whether things on earth or things in Heaven. This is God's redemptive will that one day he will bring everything into subjection to his son. And thus Paul prays that this would be the will we are satisfied with, that we know that whatever the circumstances we face, God's sovereign, overarching, redemptive will will not be thwarted. Believe that. That's the prayer. That God is indeed 
in every circumstance, we find ourselves in bringing everything into subjection to his son, every detail. So let's put the prayer into everyday language. What does this sound like today? Father, replace my brother or sister's fear or worry or doubt with a confidence in your sovereignty and goodness. Father, cause them to trust your wisdom and use this circumstance to bring about your redemptive, Christ-glorifying purpose. Allow my brother or sister to see that this is being used, verse 18, for Christ to have first place in everything. Allow my brother or sister in Christ to find Christ to be first place in their life through this. First place in their thoughts and decisions and desires and conversations and actions. That's the prayer. Paul's praying that the Colossians would be God-centered in their thinking, not me-focused in their concerns. Why? Because it is only when we are satisfied in the overarching redemptive will of God It is only when we are concerned more about his glory than our own comfort, our own ease, that we will be able to live out, finish verse nine, we'll be able to live in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's moving now from the overarching general will of God, his redemptive will, now praying for the particular will of God in the Colossians' lives. He gets specific here. Wisdom. This is the practical know-how. This is how to apply God's truth to specific situations. That's wisdom. He's praying for understanding, comprehension, clear analysis, well-thought-out decisions. So put to the two words together here, wisdom and understanding, this refers to critical thinking about the complexities of life. What are we to do here? How are we to respond here? We need wisdom and understanding. We need to understand the word and then apply the word. So often when we think of wisdom, I know what we think of. We think of peace in our hearts, don't we? Right? When, when we say we're praying for wisdom in this situation, what are we actually praying for? We're praying that we feel good about a situation, right? We can just be honest here. But that's not wisdom and that's not what Paul is praying for. Wisdom is now understanding what God's word says, now taking that command, that inference, and then applying it specifically to that situation. He's praying for the Colossians, for them to make the right decision biblically. And notice Paul is not praying for some wisdom, some understanding. He prays for all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The ability to see life from God's perspective, to see those trials and hurts and uncertainties through spiritual eyes, how God sees them. Again, if it's summing up of all things in Christ, this is seeing your decisions now based upon the reference of eternity, of Christ's coming kingdom. 
We're able to evaluate and discern the best judgment in any given situation, that which is most loyal to God's purposes. But notice the flow now. Notice the flow of Paul's prayer. To live in wisdom and understanding is only possible when we are first filled to the brim and controlled and satisfied with the overarching redemptive plan of God for his glory. And so when we intercede for one another, this is where we must begin. Father, give our brother or sister the right mind. Give them a deepening satisfaction of your purposes. Empty them of their own will and fill them with your redemptive goals and plans. Grant them a deeper and growing knowledge of your sovereign design. Cause them to believe that everything has been created ultimately for Christ, his glory. And based upon that belief, allow them to make decisions based upon that glory. Grant them a mind, grant them an outlook in which Christ has first place in everything. Father, verse nine, fill them to the brim with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Who wants someone to pray that for them? If no one does, just pray it for me, okay? I'll take it. It's a profound prayer. It's a profound prayer. We need that. Second prayer. Second prayer we are to offer on behalf of our EBC family. Prayer number two, we need to pray for one another to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We pray for the mind, but now we move to pray for the life. Continue verse 10. Paul prays, so that you will walk. It's a picture of every step we take, every decision we make, every word we speak, every step we take in our lives is to be taken in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of equal weight. It's a balancing of the scales. Here's our calling of life, to walk equal to that of the Lord to be holy as he is holy, to walk worthy of the person of Christ who called us to himself, to walk worthy of the cross of Christ which purchased us for God. The prayer is this, stand for what your savior stands for. Hate what your Lord hates, love what your Lord loves. In Ephesians 1, I implore you, Paul says, I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That is a command. And now here he turns it into a prayer. Philippians 1, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now he prays for that. 1 Thessalonians 2, walk in a manner worthy of God. And so our goal, when we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, our goal should not be the removal of the difficulty. 
should not be for God to shower us with temporal blessings. We can pray for that. That's not our goal. The goal of our prayers is for one another to be molded, to be changed into a worthy walker that every step we take would match our profession of Christ as our Savior and our Lord. Put simply, this is a prayer for holiness. We pray for one another's holiness, their obedience. Continue the verse. We also pray that we would please him in not just some respects, but all respects. There would be no part of our life out of step with the Lord's pleasure. That we would be men and women of integrity in all respects. And again, who wouldn't want that to be prayed for them? It's request number two. We pray for one another to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Third request we see here. Third request, and how different, if we look at our own prayer life, there should be conviction, right? How different this prayer is. Prayer number three, we need to pray for one another to be spiritually fruitful. We pray for one another to be spiritually fruitful. The middle of verse 10, Paul prays for the Colossians to bear fruit in every good work. A worthy walk is a fruit-bearing walk. So again, in everyday language, Father, do not allow my brother or sister to become stagnant in their spiritual life. Uh, Drop up to, or go up to verse three, one three. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Watch now verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, they're living an obedient life. And yet Paul now in verses nine and following, he says, I'm still gonna pray for you. So we don't wait. We don't say, well, they're living obediently. They're living in a a life worthy of the Lord. They're fruitful. So I'm not gonna pray for them today. I'm gonna wait till they struggle. No, we pray for all of us, whether we're living that way or not. And here again, Father, do not allow them my brothers and sisters, to become stagnant. Continue to grow them, nourish them so that they bear fruit for the glory of your name. Again, verse 10, bearing fruit, present tense. We don't pray for just a seasonal harvest, right? This is a continual and constant fruit bearing regardless of the season. And Paul is not praying for the bearing of some fruit or certain kinds of fruit as opposed to others. No, this is a big prayer. He's praying for fruit in every good work. Now, usually a fruit tree bears only one kind of fruit, right? So an apple tree produces apples. It's usually what happens. Then you have those strange things called pluots. Like, what is that? It's a plum and an apricot. Like, where did that come from? but usually it's one kind of fruit. But again, this is fruit in every good work. This is the prayer not for a fruit tree. This is the prayer for a spiritual fruit salad in the life of our brother and sister in Christ. A variety of fruit in life. 
vibrancy of production here. Let's give some specifics. What can we pray specifically, practically, as we pray this way for one another? I'm just tracing the word fruit through the New Testament here. That's all I'm doing here. Here's what we can pray for one another. Specific fruits, number one. We can pray that our brothers and sisters would bear the fruit of righteousness. It's Philippians 1, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of holy, obedient living. Matthew 3, we can pray that we would bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. Pray for the fruit of sorrowing over sin, the fruit of conviction and confession and repentance, that inward heart change that then leads to a change of life. Third, we can pray for the fruit of light. It's Ephesians 5, the fruit of light to be produced. It's described as goodness and righteousness and truth. This is the fruit of kindness and love, the fruit of truth-telling and honesty. Number four, we can pray for the fruit of the Spirit to be produced. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We pray for that specifically. Five, we can pray for one another that we would bear the fruit of lips. Hebrews 13, the fruit of lips, the sacrifice of praise later on in that verse. That every word from our lips would be an offering of worship unto the Lord. Does anyone need that prayer here? Or do you have like, you know, the tongue controlled? Perfectly. Number six, Romans 15, Paul calls sacrificial giving fruit. We pray for our brothers and sisters to win the battle against the love of money. That we would be content with what God has blessed us with. That our brothers and sisters would be good stewards of their finances, good investors storing for themselves treasures in heaven. And then seventh, 1 Corinthians 16 refers to converts to Christ as the first fruits of Achaia. We pray for the fruit of a bold witness. Pray for those conversations for the gospel. That's what Paul had in mind in Colossians chapter four. He says, pray at the same time for us that God would open up to us a door for the word to speak the gospel. That's what we pray for. That our brothers and sisters would have gospel impact in their neighborhoods, in their relationships. It's what God considers the fruit of a worthy walk. That's what we can specifically pray on behalf of one another. And there are seven of them, one for every day of the week. Isn't it amazing how God works? Number four, number four, request number four. We need to pray for one another to deepen their knowledge of God and his word. We need to pray for one another to deepen their knowledge of God and his word. So we know this to be true. Psalm chapter one, 
The tree that yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, that is the tree that is firmly planted where? By streams of water. It's a physical picture of one who delights in the law of the Lord, in the word of God, and in his law he meditates day and night. That's the fruitful life. That's the nourishment we need. It's a word-fed life. I'll continue verse 10 here, Colossians 1.10. Paul knows what we need. He knows that if we are gonna walk in a worthy manner, we must meditate on God's truth. And so he prays that the Colossians would be increasing in the knowledge of God. And you cannot miss Paul's emphasis on knowledge here, learning, understanding, of who God is and God's word. Look at verse six, the end of verse six. Paul thanks the Lord that the Colossians understood, understood the grace of God in truth. In verse seven, he praises God that the Colossians had learned the gospel. Verse nine, Paul begins this prayer by requesting God to fill them with knowledge of his will. We saw it in verse, at the end of verse nine, spiritual wisdom and understanding, it's key. And now for the fifth time, five times in five verses, Paul focuses on the mind of the Christian. And he connects our knowledge, our understanding of God and his word to now the fruitfulness of our life. Just break this down a bit. It's the word increasing agricultural term. So Paul is speaking about the maturing of a plant. The maturing of a plant, a picture of a believer increasing in devotion. Increasing in their devotion, their dedication. And the phrase there, in the knowledge of God, you can translate it as by means of. By means of the knowledge of of God. The knowledge of God is the instrument by which the believer increases and grows and matures. So you put it all together with the rain and the sunshine and the miracle grow does to nurture the plants, to grow the crop. That is what the knowledge of God that comes through his word does to us. That is what grows us, matures us in our spiritual life. We cannot leave on Sunday morning and close this book, put it by the side of our bed and never see it again. This is what grows us. We know the truth, right? Romans 12, it's by the renewing of your mind. That's how we're transformed. It's two options. You're either conformed to the world or you're transformed into Christ. And by the way, you never stay neutral. Either moving in one of two directions. So here, Paul, again, in agricultural language, if you want to bear fruit, you need to nourish your soul. You need to renew your mind. First Peter 2, different imagery, same idea. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it, that's the instrument, that's the nourishment, that by it you may grow. It's the same word, by the way, we see here, that you may grow, deepen, mature in respect to salvation, your sanctification. 
Do you long for the pure milk of the word? But now let's turn it around. Do you pray that your brothers and sisters in Christ would long for that? It's one thing if we pray that for ourselves, right? And it's a good prayer. Pray it for ourselves. How much better if 300 people were praying that for you? It's just exponential. So we ask God would deepen our knowledge of him. We pray that we would stay in his word, renew our minds to the word. We can use the words here, increase in knowledge. It's epinosis, full knowledge, penetrating knowledge of God. We can intercede that our minds would be open and ready to hear his word. I know Sunday mornings are busy for all of us, but wouldn't it be great if we would lift one another in prayer and pray specifically that we would be ready to hear God's word preached and then live it out? We pray for one another to move beyond the fundamentals of the faith and move from the milk to the meat. That's Hebrews 5. We pray that we would grow in the knowledge of God and his word. Fifth prayer. Fifth request Paul makes for these Colossian believers. Fifth way we can pray for one another. We need to pray for one another to steadfastly endure in the faith. To steadfastly endure in faith. I want you to notice the next request in verse 11. We see here that we have not ceased to pray for you to ask that you may, what? Verse 11, be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. That's a big prayer. We need the prayer to endure in the faith. We've looked at it in John 15 and John 16. We live in this world. We battle the, the devil, the flesh, the world. We need this prayer. And this just shows how desperate we are for one another's intercession. Verse 11, we need divine empowerment. We need divine empowerment to live the Christian life. Paul emphasizes our dependence on God by piling up words for strength here, strength and power. He says we need to be strengthened, dunamao. And he says power, dunamis, two words, same root. Literally, here's the prayer. I'm praying that you will be powered by all power or strengthened by all strength. That's what you need. Paul's not praying for just any kind of power. And he is certainly not praying for our own power to be increased. No, Paul prays, continue verse 11, that we would be strengthened by all strength according to his glorious might. Another word for power. It's a different word, but it's supernatural strength here. This word for power is only used for God's power throughout the New Testament. That's what we need. This word for power means power to overcome all resistance. We need nothing less than God's sovereign power to be at work in our lives. Ephesians 1 uses this word to refer to God's power to resurrect Jesus from the dead. 
Ephesians 6, this word is used for God's power to defeat Satan. 1 Timothy 6, same word to describe God's sovereign power over all things. Paul says, that's the power I'm praying on your behalf. That's the power we need to be strengthened in order to endure in the faith, in order to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And notice that small phrase in verse 11, according to, according to his glorious might. Paul does not pray for the Colossians to be strengthened from God's power or by God's power. He prays that they would be strengthened according to his power. What's the difference? Well, if someone gives you from his wealth, he may give you very little, right? But when someone donates according to his riches, the amount will be comparable to the wealth he possesses. That's the prayer. Not that God would give from his power, but that he would give according to his power, a divine supply, according to his glorious, transcendent, majestic, radiant, awesome, divine might. That's what we need. Why? Continue verse 11. For the attaining of all steadfastness, all endurance, all fortitude, all perseverance in the faith. Do you ever get tired to live a holy life? Do you ever find yourself weak in that? That's the prayer. That's the reason we need this prayer. We need this might. We need this prayer when our faith in Christ does not deliver ease. When heartache and pain come, we need this prayer so that we will not abandon him or lose heart. No, we'll endure, we'll bear up under, that's the word. We'll remain faithful. And continue the verse, we also need patience. We pray for the attaining of all patience. That's long-suffering, that's self-restraint, being slow to anger. We need one another's prayers so that we can be steadfast through life's difficulties. But patience refers to interacting with other people. We need prayer so that we can be patient with difficult people. Anyone have difficult people in their life? Probably not here, right? So Father, cause my brother or sister to not yield to his flesh in anger. Protect him or her from growing bitter towards others. Cause them to forgive rather than retaliate. That's the prayer we need. And according to Paul here, we need nothing less than God's sovereign power to do this so that we will not break. We will not become weary. We will not succumb to the pressures of this world, the temptations of the devil, the pull of our own flesh. Sixth request, finish up here. Sixth way we can pray for one another. 
We need to pray for one another to find great joy in the gospel. We need to pray for one another to find great joy in the gospel. How appropriate. I look out often, I know you do the same. We see believers, weary faces, downcast. But there's joy. Despite the circumstances, there is joy in the gospel always. And that's how Paul ends his prayer. He prays that the Colossians would, verse 11, joyously give thanks to the Father. He's praying for a joy that does not ebb and flow with the ups and downs of life. He's praying for a joy based solely on the grace of God's salvation. Continuing to verse 12, Father, grant your people joy so that they can give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Grant them a joy that rests on your eternal choice of them. Your choice to save them from their sins, to declare them righteous in your sight. Allow them to find that joy that they will stand in your presence complete and will receive your eternal inheritance. By the way, Paul's in prison at this point. This is the joy that he was clinging to. Moving to verse 13, we pray for a joy based on the fact that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness. We pray for a joy because the Father has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Pray for a joy knowing that it is only because of God's grace that we've been delivered out of the slave market of sin where we were once chained and bound. We could not release ourselves, but verse 14, we rejoice because in Christ we have redemption. We pray for a joy that finds its source in the complete pardon for every sin. Pardon for every sin we have committed against an infinitely glorious God. That's verse 14. In whom we have the forgiveness of sins. So we lift one another in prayer, interceding before God that our brother and sister would cherish God's saving grace grasp the profundity of their salvation and prize above all else, the Father's saving plan of inheritance and deliverance and transference, redemption and forgiveness. Those are gifts that will never be removed. And thus we pray for a joy that this world can never take away. That was Jesus' promise back in John 16 that our hearts would always Rejoice, no one will take our joy away from us because it's grounded in the gospel. So we pray for one another to find great joy in Christ's gospel. Here is what we need, each of us. This is what we need. We need one another to bring us before the throne of God's grace. 
There's no better way we can love and care for one another than by following Jesus' lead in John 17. Christ-likeness is praying for one another. But then modeling Paul's heart in Colossians 1 and bringing our brothers and sisters before God's throne and asking them to be satisfied with his sovereign will, that the Lord would cause them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, that they would produce fruit within their lives, that they would deepen their knowledge of his word, that they would be strengthened with all endurance and that they would find joy, everlasting joy the world cannot take away, joy in Christ's gospel. That's the privilege we have been given for one another. That is discipleship in community. And that is our responsibility. Father, we thank you that we have a great high priest who prays for us. And we thank you that the perfect God-man gave us that model. I pray that we would be even more Christ-like in our lives, Christ-like in our prayers. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for being selfish in our prayer life, being so temporal-minded in our prayers. Allow us to pray the way of Christ, pray the way of Paul, and that you would grow our love for each other here as we bring one another before your Father's throne. What a privilege it is. Grant us, Lord, a joy in doing that and obedience to do that. And that through those prayers, we would be united even more together here at this church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.